Tonight's episode of the BS Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network brought to you by ZipRecruiter. While a lot of things may change as our world opens up again, there's one thing that won't change. Our presenting sponsor, ZipRecruiter's mission. They'll continue doing what they've always done, helping growing companies hire for their teams and helping people find jobs. I had a good friend of mine just recently asked uh, for some ZipRecruiter information because he needed to hire some good people. It heard us talking about them on the podcast and was like, send me the right way. So I did. If you're actively hiring, ZipRecruiter will invite candidates to apply to your most urgent roles, making it faster and easier to reach people you need by bringing employers and job seekers together. ZipRecruiter is working to help all of us. ZipRecruiter.com slash work together. We're also brought to you by TheRinger.com and The Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer, I would keep an eye on The Ringer FC feed over the next couple of days. We are injecting some fresh blood in there. Very excited about that. Uh, that feed has been quiet for a little while, but soccer is is back and we're going to be livening it up in a whole bunch of different ways. So keep an eye on that if you like soccer. Coming up, I'm going to talk a little bit at the top about the situation the NBA is in right now. And then Ryan Rousseau is going to join us. We did the 2007 redraftables on Friday. We carved out a whole Friday afternoon to really dive into it. So we're going to run that right here. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, taping this uh, 7 o'clock on Sunday night. Wanted to talk quickly about what's going on with the NBA these last few days. So you had everyone thinking that we were headed toward Orlando at the end of July to play a few regular season games in the playoffs. We thought everything was settled. There was a big Ramona Shelburne piece in uh, on ESPN.com about Adam Silver and Bob Iger and Chris Paul coming together and figuring this whole thing out. And then I think over the past week, two things happened. One, it was unclear by all accounts just how much of a bubble this thing was going to be in Disney because it seemed like, you know, the players and coaches and team employees are going to be quarantined. But then Disney was also going to be a little bit open too. And what about those people? So all of a sudden, from a safety standpoint, it didn't seem 100%. And then on top of it, it really started to come out, like how long people had to be there, the quarantine thing, when when families could come, they couldn't leave. So all that side got, I think, just a little more serious as we got a little bit closer. But then we also had um, a lot of the players talking amongst themselves, wondering if they should keep going with the season, whether the moment that this country is having right now and the position that they hold, both with fans and with people and, you know, in a lot of cases as African-Americans, whether it was more important for them to do the things they need to do with their platforms for the country than it was to play basketball. And you had a whole bunch of different positions kind of coming out of this. And, you know, you have Kyrie basically saying, this is what Sham Sarania quoted him as saying, I don't support going into Orlando. I'm not with the systemic racism and the bullshit. Something smells a little fishy. Whether we want to admit it or not, we are targeted as black men every day we wake up. You had Steven Jackson, 
um, one of my favorites. He said, quote, none of these white owners have spoken up. None of them are taking a stand. Playing basketball ain't going to do nothing but make them money and take attention off what we are fighting for. But then you had guys like Austin Rivers who pointed out 99% of the players haven't made the money Kyrie has. I love Kyrie's passion toward helping this movement. I'm with it, but in the right way and not at the cost of the whole NBA and players' careers. We can do both. We can play and we can help change the way black lives are lived. And then you had uh, Patrick Beverly who said, Hoopers say what y'all want. If King James said he hooping, we all hooping, not personal, only business. Hashtag stay woke. There was also a lot of stuff that came out about concerns of players who have a chance to sign Big Max extensions. Are they going to be insured? Um, real pressure on the players right now about if the season does get canceled, that allows the NBA to invoke the force majeure clause. It causes $1.2 billion in losses for the players and for the owners. Uh, it has a dramatic impact on the salary cap. It completely changes the history of the league in the sense that we, we won't have a champion for a season for the first time. There are all these different things. The counter to all that is the moment that America is having right now. The tension, um, the protests, the platforms of some of these guys are just more important than basketball. And that should win at the end. So I don't know how this is going to play out. My guess is it's probably going to get a little more contentious over the next couple of days. And then eventually they'll end up playing because I, I think the prevailing wisdom will be that the stage that they'll be able to have for nine to 10 straight weeks, playing games, capturing the country's attention and all the things that they can do with that stage as they're playing is the best possible use of their platform. But if they decide that that's not the case, and if guys don't want to go, or if ultimately the whole thing falls apart, that's okay too. I think what's cool is that they're talking about it, and they're talking about it in real ways, which brings me to 1968, even though the circumstances were completely different. And as crazy as this sounds, they were even bleaker and, and sadder and more disturbing than everything we're going through now. But Martin Luther King was assassinated on April 4th. It was the day before... The conference finals were going to start with the, uh, it was the Celtics against the Sixers in the East. And I think it was the Lakers against the Hawks in the, uh, in the West. So game one was the night after Martin Luther King gets assassinated. The players are in shock. And I went, I, I deep dove, I tried to read everything there was online about this. There's not as much information as I remember there being when, um, when I wrote my book, but the, all the relevant stuff's out there. The, the black players were, you know, completely devastated in shock and they assumed the game was going to get canceled. Nobody on the Philly side really did anything and, or the, they didn't really hear from anybody. They woke up the next day. Um, there's stuff about Chet Walker called Hal Greer couldn't figure out, neither of them could figure out what was going on. Wilt Chamberlain, who's playing for Philly at the time, he called the uh, Sixers GM, Jack Ramsey. Jack Ramsey told him the game had to be played because um, all the tickets had been sold. It was on television. They couldn't kind of, kind of call the game back. And then Bill Russell, 
who was not just the best player in the Celtics and the best player of the, of the first 25 years of the league. He was also coaching the Celtics at the time. He calls Wilt, and the two of them tried to figure out what to do. Neither of them wanted to play, according to all the information. Um, there was a feeling. Both teams are telling players, and I think the players probably felt it too, that um, – there was rioting going on all over the country and the players were being pressured like, Hey, if we cancel this game, um, the, you know, that could make it even worse. Maybe if, maybe if you end up playing, it could take people's minds on this for a couple of hours. Um, our back called a team meeting. The Celtics talked it out with Russell leading the way. Cause he was the coach. Apparently, um, it, it was a tense conversation and one Celtic wondered, um, Bailey Howell wondered why the idea was even being discussed. He was quoted as saying, what was, what was King's title? Why should we call off the game? Some of the black players took that very personally, but Russell said later, um, they worked through it. They were all really close. And remember back then the guys are just hanging out 24 seven, that Celtics team in particular had been through a ton of stuff and it really led the way in all kinds of different uh, directions with civil rights in the sixties for the NBA. You know, Russell was the first black coach was the first team that started five black players. Russell was the most important guy in the league, you know, and, and they were going to figure this out. And Russell said that he reminded him, he reminded the team quote, this isn't black and white. It's an American problem. So they got through it. They decided they were going to play. Wayne Embry was Russell's backup center and we came up huge in game seven. He was also the, uh, the first black general manager in 1972, but he remembers it as quote, they wanted to keep people off the streets or at least delay it. They thought the arena would be packed and people would be glued to the television. Of course, our immediate reaction was we didn't want to play. We were stunned in the morning and angry, but we understood we could serve a greater purpose. So then Wilt wrote about this in one of his books. He said, Red Arback called the Boston players together. They talked about whether or not they should play the game or ask for a postponement. They agreed to play. Day of the game, they came to Philadelphia together, united in their grief and in their determination. But Alex, who's Alex Hannon, the Sixers coach at the time, but Alex didn't think to call a player meeting. Most of us didn't see each other until we got into the locker room that night. Remember, no cell phones, nothing. I mean, they, you know, it's a completely different era. Like Boston, we were grief-stricken, but we were confused, bewildered, uncertain. It showed that night. Uh, and then the Celtics, um, they ended up winning by nine. One, a couple other notes about that game. The commissioner was Walter Kennedy. He let the decision of whether the game should be played. He left that up to the two owners. And then... Uh, and somebody said at one point, if this was the president, it would be one thing. Remember, a few years before, the NFL had decided to play after JFK was assassinated and took a ton of shit for that. Um, the Sixers, Wilt actually called for a vote before the, uh, about an hour before the game. And the players voted 7-2 to play. Wilt and Wally Jones were on the side of postponing and Chet Walker refused to vote. So... Um, and Wilt was quoted as saying, I would personally like to see the whole day taken off as some kind of memorial to Dr. King, but I'm only one individual. I don't want to instigate anything. I'll follow the majority. So they end up playing New York Times. Leonard Coppett was there. 
And he wrote that quote, it was the eeriest, most subdued sporting event I've ever seen. Meanwhile, there's not any information on what was going on in the Western finals, but in Elger Baylor, he wrote a book called Hangtime, autobiography. He said, quote, this is how he felt at the time. I frankly don't know how I would play the next night. I feel stunned, angry, and deeply sad. Our voice has been stilted. I feel the NBA should postpone all playoff games. I call Bill Russell, player coach of the Celtics. He tells me some players want to play, several want to postpone. I don't ask which players want to play. I don't want to know. I picture certain players in the Celtics and even guys on our team, mostly from the South, who I doubt can understand what Dr. King meant to me, to us. I hear comments, quote, he wasn't the president or anything. Why should we call off the game? End quote. The games go on as scheduled. And then President, president Johnson declares Sunday, April 7th, the National Day of Mourning. And that lifts my spirits somewhat. So the funeral was, uh, they postponed game two. And Russell and Wilt went to the funeral in Atlanta. And so I knew about all this. And I, I spent two days with Russell in 2012 did it uh, did it for a documentary that NBA TV did. Also did a podcast about it on the Book of Basketball feed about uh, a lot about that day and just just really probably the most amazing experience of my entire career. But at one point I asked Russell about that whole week and what it was like. And here's what he said. We're talking about 1968 and uh, when Martin Luther King got assassinated. What do you remember now? It's been almost 45 years since that happened. Well, you know, I had met him at the March on Washington. And you were there for the I Have a Dream speech? Yes, yes. In fact, I was invited to go on the stage, but I respectfully declined because they had been working on that for more than a year, and I had done anything. And I didn't think it was right or fair to me go up on the stage and say, see, I'm one of the guys. Yeah. And so uh, I sat in the first row. So you get the news that, that he's been killed. You're about to play the Sixers in the 68 playoffs. Well, they asked us, do you want to call the game off? And someone pointed out that 12 or 13,000 people are in the streets with emotions off the chart. And if we play the game, they give the folks a chance to cool down. And that's the reason we had the game. So you're glad you had the game retrospect. It seems like it was the right idea. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how I feel about that. We, we did what we thought was right at that time. So when I asked him that, it was 44 and a half years later, and he still didn't know the answer. And I think that's an important point. This is one of the three best players of all time, one of the most important athletes ever. Um, and this was a really big decision, and he was a thoughtful guy. And he had been thinking about it ever since. And he still didn't know if they should play. So when I think about the moment that the NBA is facing right now, and these guys who I think this is the best generation of players from, I don't know, a maturity standpoint that we've ever seen. And I, I don't really fully understand it, how guys who are 22 and 23 can be so thoughtful about all this stuff. I just know what I was like in my early 20s. I was a jackass. I'm, I'm just constantly impressed by, you know, a lot of the guys in this league. It's a really special group of guys. And I think it's important that they're taking this time. And however this plays out, 
I don't think this should be, you know, a sports take type thing. And what do you think? Kyrie, like, this is not about that. This is about a decision that they have to make, not only to be away from their families for this long, but also something that 44 and a half years from now, they're going to look back at and wonder if they made the right call. So if that takes a few days to figure out and you need more dialogue and you need maybe a couple calls with some people screaming at each other, I think all that is great because if you go back and read, you know, a, a situation that's similar in a couple ways, but dissimilar in a whole bunch of other ways, what happened in 1968, they did, they, they kind of rushed it and they had to rush it. The league wasn't in the same position of strength that's in now. The players couldn't communicate the way they can communicate now. But the aftermath was that 44 and a half years later, Bill Russell didn't know if they should have played or not. So I'm glad they're taking the time. I think, you know, I, I know just even from my end, I've taken a lot of time the last two and a half weeks just thinking about everything and, you know, reevaluating, which I think is super important. And with this, like, if they end up, they end up deciding that they shouldn't play, that this is the wrong moment to do that, that other things are more important, then, then that's what they should do. But I think the important thing is to keep talking, keep batting it around, and get to the right place with it. So um, I just want to say that. We're going to take a break, and then we're doing the uh, 2007 redraftables. All right, before we get to the 2007 Redraftables, if you're doing more searching than streaming these days, check out HBO Max. It's a new streaming platform where all of HBO meets the greatest collection of movies and shows. Every HBO series, Sopranos, Sex and the City, which my wife has been watching a lot of lately. That's a really good show. Insecure, you name it. It's all on there. A uh, lot of timeless movie classics, ranging from Wizard of Oz to Casablanca to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. A ton of TV. My son has been super happy about that. They have Rick and Morty. They have uh, South Park. But there, there's Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I'm trying to get my both of my kids to start watching that. We'll see how that goes. They have superheroes and supervillains from DC. Family favorites, New Max originals for everyone, all in one place for just $14.99 per month. I have been there often. It is a top three app for me right now. Start streaming today. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. Free trials for new customers only. Restrictions do apply. All right, it's time. The 2007 NBA redraftables, Odin versus Durant. Oh yeah, we're reliving it. Here we go. 2007 NBA redraftables. This is the Odin or Durant draft. This was the most fun I think any of us had in the 21st century in the months leading up to a draft because you had the hype heading into the season. You had everybody taking sides. Then you had the season play out. Odin gets hurt. Durant looks incredible playing center for Texas. Odin has a crazy comeback near the end and really looks good in madness. And then for the next couple months, we're just arguing. And we all agree that at the very least, there are two franchise superstars in this draft, and the way it played out was not the case. Your first thoughts when you think of this 13 years later? 
You. I think of you because I just read <laughs> your stuff from 2007. I spent a lot of time researching what you had to say about this. And uh, this was the first draft where I started becoming a little arrogant about my player evaluations because I, I had a good draft on this one. But yeah. I was wondering because you were as pro Durant as any voice in the country, you were 100% right. The jokes that you were making about Odin are oddly like perfect. And I wonder, did you want to just do an hour on Durant yourself? And I'll jump in at minute like 61 or 62. <laughs> the Odin thing was tough because I think if he doesn't get hurt, he would have been, you know, a multi all-star really good career. But there was, there were just these red flags that I just wasn't ready to overlook considering the history of the NBA and what had happened with guys who had had those red flags. And Durant to me, it always came down to this. I thought Durant was a sure thing. I think very rarely can you look at a guy coming into the league as a rookie. And I felt this way about Zion. Sure thing. He is a sure thing. He is going to be incredible. Now, Zion, you get a little worried because he's up in the air so much. He's already had a knee issue, something like that. Durant to me was unassailable. There was no doubt in my mind. You didn't feel that way? No, I thought Durant was a lock, but I think I still, in 2007, we weren't ready. Like you always kind of have to remember the mindset then. And we were still a center league. We were a league about centers. It was, this was the beginning of when it was transitioning away from you needed a big man. And, you know, for the longest time it was like, you know, I mean, look, the Jordan years are different just because he could do whatever he wanted with it, all the people around him. And they didn't really have any, they never had anything close to a star center, but uh, we still felt like, okay, you needed, you needed that kind of player. And Odin was so good. And I remember going back and watching his high school stuff and talking to Thad Mata. I remember asking Thad, I go, why did, why do you let Odin get himself into these situations where he's out in the perimeter on these switches? Because don't you think he's going to get in foul trouble? He goes, because he's the best big switch I've ever seen. Now, Garnett's probably the best I think I've ever seen over a long period of time. But Odin had those things. And there were all these other really good players on the Ohio State team, so it wasn't like they went to him all the time. So I was guilty of it was, there was nothing about my Odin Durant thing where it was against Durant at all. Like, you know, look, he couldn't post. He was sort of weak. Like in a way he's like that quarterback that doesn't have that perfect body. Like you don't want the quarterback to be ripped. You don't want him to be Brady Quinn. You want him to be more like Trent Dilfer's body. And Durant had this like, yeah, I'm just going to go out there and ball and dribble and pull up from three and be seven feet. And who cares that I'm not the strongest guy and I don't have a post, but I still was so fascinated with all the different things that Odin can do that. Yeah. If Odin doesn't get hurt, Odin is, I think, a Hall of Famer. And that's why I hate I hate talking about because anytime a guy who I think is gonna be really good is hurt and then he's labeled a bust, I just don't think we should ever look at guys that are hurt because he did show signs too. And I remember talking to front office people in Portland when they thought he was coming back and they're like, You should see this guy right now. It's insane. Like he's gonna be awesome. And I hate I hate the Odin story. And then I got to meet him not that long ago. And he, there's it's tough to find a nicer guy. So I hate this happened to his career, but ultimately uh everyone that had Odin was wrong and everybody had Odin. 40 years of basketball, sort of going back since 1980. I think him and Ewing, the ceiling of them as defensive athletic centers were the highest of anybody I saw in college. And I was Durant all year, like almost like to a fault. I, I was just like, you. it actually made me mad. I, you I were, was so, you were. So far on the Durant side. But then in the title game, when he went against Horford and Noah Odin, and you really could see it. He, he went toe to toe with, I think probably the best college team of that decade and was just great. It was electric. He was electric to watch. He was playing hurt. I think he either had a, 
you know, the wrist thing then. Yeah, the recovering wrist that he was playing with. And after that game, I really, I really wavered a little. I still was Durant, but not as, not as certain. I remember I wrote an ESPN magazine. They asked me to do a feature and I did a Dr. Jack breakdown. Odin versus Durant. I had to hand it in probably two weeks before the draft. And I didn't even totally make a pick at the end. I, I listed all these different categories, made a bunch of jokes. And then at the end, it's like, ah, maybe Durant. But then by the time we got to draft week, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I got to go all in. I feel like this is going to be one of the most memorable debates for years later when people look back. It's going to really matter which side you're on. And I was like, I'm going all in on Durant. I wrote uh, in that Chad Ford piece, I, I wrote that I thought he had a legitimate chance to go down with Bird, Magic, MJ, Baylor, Oscar, West, Duncan, Pettit, Havlicek, and every other great non-center who ever played in the league. 2020, I think it's fair to say he at least achieved that 12 years into his career, right? I, I think he's one of the 10 best non-centers in the history of the league. I think that's an unassailable point. Yeah, and if he wasn't the Achilles, like we, you start tacking all these numbers together, and you know it's weird when you go through and look at these redrafts. You're like, oh yeah, that guy. How long has he been gone? Like I'm looking up Rodney Stuckey. I'm like, oh, Rudy Fernandez only played four years, and you're looking at all these different guys, and you're going, hey, when Durant's right, like he was on the on the cusp of being maybe the undisputed best player in the world, and some of these guys haven't gotten an NBA paycheck in years. So that's that's where the Durant. I just want to jump back to the Odin thing real quick though, because I remember yeah. the semifinal game against Georgetown. And I ne like as many times we get frustrated about fouls, like the refs didn't get the memo on that one because I think Hibbert also was in foul trouble. And that game, like he played 20 minutes and you go, okay, cool. So we have a final four game with Georgetown, who's a 30-win team and this a great Ohio State team. And like here we're sitting, like already they're just calling fouls on everybody the whole time. Um, and Hibbert ended up playing like 24 minutes. Yeah, he ended up with four fouls, but he went 25 and 12 with a few assists in that loss against that amazing Florida team, which I don't even think it's like the best team that you could argue that Florida team is one of the greatest college teams we've seen in modern history. So right. he was, he was great. And so I can see where even as the strongest Durant guy, which it's hard to think of how many other guys um, were as aligned as you were, where you watch how Odin was finishing up and there was just the in-between stuff, like the in-between things. Does this guy understand things? And, and Odin did. And I talked with a couple GMs and guys in front offices that were with teams leading up to this redraft. So I was like, hey, get, let's go back to 2007. Let's talk about it. One GM told me that Kevin Pritchard, who was the GM at the time of the Trailblazers, asked every other team, who would you take? And I guess it came back 29 of 30 teams said they would take Odin, which is just the mindset. That's that's what it was. And I know the Celtics, you you know more about this than I do, but the Celtics, it is, it's always been like, they're the team that's saying, I don't know, according to this, random poll that I'm referencing here that wasn't even official. But I think the Celtics had always kind of argued after the fact that they were going to be the team that would have taken Durant. I don't know what you believe. So I have a lot of inside info on that, both at the time and then afterwards. And I think they were quiet about it because they really liked Odin as a guy. So they didn't want it to seem like, you know, they were negative. But two things. One was Danny was in love with Durant. Like just in love with him, like just thought he was going to be a superstar and absolutely would have taken him one. Um, now, Danny hasn't been right all the time with the draft, but on this one, I think he really felt strongly about it. The other thing was they have a, a team doctor, at least they did back then, that they really used to listen to. And that guy looked at Odin's legs and his knees and all that and was like, I, I can't. 
I can't let you do this. So I think they were just gravitating toward Duran. I think they wanted the sure thing. I, when I was writing about it back then, I, I put probably more thought into this debate than any other draft debate of my life. And I went back and I went through all the franchise centers and it's like, dude, you know, the best ones ever, Russell and Kareem and Hakeem and Duncan, Moses, Shaq, if you count Duncan as a center. And just like, did these guys have anything in common? And the thing over and over again was like, um, they had to love basketball and they had to have a will to dominate. And I thought that was the one thing, if you're going to be like, all right, if I'm taking a center and this is going to work out the best it can possibly work out, is this guy going to go on a court and be like, I'm fucking destroying everybody today. And I just didn't feel like Odin was wired that way. He seemed like such a nice guy. Um, he seemed more on the David Robinson side than anything. And that was before, like he had the legs thing was a real thing. I mean, his legs we knew before the draft were an inch and a half different sizes. We already knew he had a surgically repaired wrist. And it just, to me, it was too many red flags when there was a sure thing sitting there. I didn't feel good about it. And that was it. Yeah, it's really easy now when we're talking about one of the great scorers that we've ever seen. So I don't. I feel like I interrupted you as you were going to kind of go more of a Durant resume riff there. Um, I can do. I can do that now. It's just that. The, well, what were the what were the knocks against Durant? Right, he's too skinny. He didn't had, post. He didn't post. You know, like when there was talks about like what he was going to be a three or four, and now all that stuff seems so stupid. Like we were so married to these positional like lanes and now it's 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 you know that's part of the evolution of some of the ways we look at the game where you go why did it take us forever to just say hey why don't we just put better players out there right <laughs> like, well th think how simple that is and yet how long it took for the game to accept that and there was a whole thing about he didn't he didn't lift enough weights he only lifted like 180 well, zero he didn't list he didn't never lifted it like he couldn't i think the combine it's 225 for the nfl one i think back then and i don't know if it's it was 180 for nba 20, i think 185 i'm just gonna save you here with the lifting community it's 185 and he got it zero times i think but who cares so like were, if you don't lift and your arms are that long and you've never benched you're just you're just bad at it even if you're like sort of strong it's just a different kind of learn strength and so you know guys these young kids that have never really lifted have these insane wingspans they throw them on a bench they can't it's so unfair to be like oh this guy's a weakling so we're also this is heading into the 2007-8 season this is you know still pretty the nba is still pretty physical at that point dating back to the late 90s going through the 2000s the 04 pistons have just won the title with the wallace brothers then in 05, you got a lot of Duncan going against Detroit. Um, the league, the the offense was slowing down. It was more, it was still more physical. You had a couple of outlier teams like the uh the Nash Sun teams, but for the most part, there was still this mindset like a franchise center is always the best thing to have. And what we didn't really fully realize in 07 was actually we should have learned from the Dwayne Wade finals. The best thing to have is actually an unstoppable offensive player in the perimeter, a non-center somebody that where the league was going, you know, you could just funnel everything through this person, then run and then put a team around them. And the guy was going to be a lot more reliable than a center. We didn't know. We didn't fully know that in 07. I think Danny was starting to think that way though. Cause that this was the same year where he traded for Ray Allen. He was just starting to think more perimeter offense and it really doesn't start kicking in until the next decade. But Within five years, it, it kind of became crazy that everybody would have been like, wow, Durant, 30 points a game potentially. Of course, that's the guy we should take. 
but we weren't, we just weren't there in 07. So this was not a con. I don't really don't feel like this was a controversial pick with Odin. I think like what you said, it really was like all the GMs pretty much, except for maybe one or two outliers were taking Odin. That was it. Yeah, I mean, to sit, to sit back and go like, not only, not only is Durant going to be able to score, he's going to be a seven footer that we still in 2020 don't really have. I mean, he's, he's Giannis with three point range and a better handle. Um, that's, that's nuts. I mean, that's, that's how special this guy is. So anything that we're saying now back then, like you just, you didn't understand it. You didn't understand the three point revolution that was going to be coming. And you didn't understand that you're right. I think the most valuable thing you can have right now is somebody that can create off the dribble, but then also complement it with shooting. And then on top of that, we're talking about somebody who might be like seven one and you just can't contest a shot. And the reason I would back you on the Ainge thing here is that I remember, I think it was before the 05 draft, I was at the Waltham facility and um, I there was a presser. So, you know, it wasn't like I was on the beat, but I just showed up and I asked Ainge a question. I was like, is there one skill that you go like, this is this is the skill that I, I prioritize over every other skill? And he was like, yeah. And he gave me like an honest answer. It was weird because it wasn't like a practice answer. He just goes, yeah, shooting. Cause there's just not right. enough shooting. He goes, I wish I had more shooting. He goes, I always, it's almost like whenever your favorite baseball team before the deadline, you're looking at what's available for the trade deadline. And every single fan base is going, if we could just get one more arm out of the bullpen is we just had one more guy to bridge us to the ninth or something. And it's like, yeah, cause there's just not enough of those guys. And, and he had said that about shooting and to think that there'd be any debate about somebody, but you have to go back to 07 to understand the consensus. Easily the consensus was Odin because he was really good. Like you didn't know this was going to happen. And there's so many times too with Portland where they thought he was coming back and it's like, all right, he's ready to go. He's ready to wait until you see this. And he did have, and I'm not just saying it's the, the Robert Swift glimpse that I get made fun of for bringing up all the time, <laughs> yeah. but there were, there were some stretches with Odin where you go, okay, yeah, like, this, this is not, and that's why I always, I'll say it again, busts are are guys that get drafted high who can't play, not guys like Odin. Who- like Ishan Lan, who we'll talk about in a little bit. <laughs> you know, I was friends with Daryl at this point, and Daryl had just taken over the Rockets. They had no chance at Durant, but he he had the model that anytime he's been on the podcast, I've always joked about, because I basically figured out what the model was to, to study college players. But in 06, 07 was, you know, advanced metrics, stuff like that. There are only a couple teams even looking that way. Well, what's the model? I'm, I'm curious now. Well, I'll just tell you this. I was watching Durant. Durant that year averaged 25.8 points a game and 11 rebounds a game, 40% from three, and he shot 82% uh, free throw. He also got to the line about eight times a game. This is in college. <laughs> and I was looking at the stats and I was like, God damn, 26 and 11 as an 18 year old in college. Like, so I went and I looked and I forget how I looked it up, but I was trying to, trying to find other comparisons of guys who had even had stats close to that. And I just asked there, I was like, this is the kind of guy that breaks your model. Right. And he's like, ah, he's just like mumbling. Um, now Evan Turner was another guy who did really well with the model and Evan Turner, you know, did make it as a pro, but I just want to point out like 26 and 11 as an 18 year old in college, playing a real schedule. He's playing at the university of Texas. He's not, you know, he's not at Merrimack. Um, and he's playing out of position. He was playing center that year. And it was a really fun team to watch in general. College basketball was great that year, but man, it's like, you look at his stats now and it's like, oh yeah, of course 
what was really nuts is he goes to Seattle. He gets drafted by the Sonics RIP. And PJ Carlissimo is going, you know what this guy really is? A two guard. And plays him his whole rookie year completely out of position at the two guard. And it was one of the dumbest things ever. And it was like he had this great natural resource. And I have no idea why he did that. And by the way, Durant has no idea why he did it either. So there you go. So well, you think it's because of Ronald Dupree? <laughs> well, um, there's more tragedies with this draft. Zach Cramp from The Ringer points out Greg Oden played just 105 career games, the fewest for any number one pick since Mark Workman in 1952. Even I don't know who Mark Workman is. Durant has made 10 all-star games in his career. According to Zach, the rest of the players picked in this draft made 10 all-star games combined. And then Durant, obviously, two-time finals MVP, won an MVP, four finals trips, two titles. This is about as big of a disparity as you can have. But here's the true tragedy. He falls into Seattle's lap. Ugh. Seattle's picking second. Portland takes Odin. Durant falls to two. What I have him 15th all time, and his career's not over yet. This guy falls to them at two, and they move the team in a year. This has no parallel to any moment in basketball history to land a top 15 all-time future double finals MVP guy, and a year later, he's packing and he's out. Brutal. I mean, absolutely brutal. It bums me out. Yeah, not enough is talked. Like, it's always, it's always rough. I remember, you know, certain radio shows, you know, summertime and you're going over stuff. You'd be like, which city do you feel the most bad for? <laughs> you know, another, a smarter way to say which cities do you feel worse for, the worst for. And you would just keep getting back to Cleveland. You're like, my God, this is before LeBron's comeback against the Warriors. Yeah. But you just go, have you done any research on that stretch for all of those different teams? But this is so different because it's meaner. It's nastier. It's it's like a it's like somebody that you like that you maybe know doesn't like you. And then you get a missed call from them in the middle of the night and then you check in and they're like, sorry, that was a mistake. You're like, oh, so you weren't That's really a mistake. Calling? I was calling. Yeah. I was yeah. calling my sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> I was calling. I was calling somebody I actually like. This is. So nasty to get a glimpse of him and think about what it is. And I was going through that roster. You're right. Like Chris Wilcox, Jeff Green, because he came over in the trade. Uh, Watson was the guard. There's there's all these big players that Seattle was playing. But to well, see they have him a, for a but year. But they have a top five pick coming. Yeah. They take Westbrook. They still haven't left Seattle yet. So now they have Durant and Westbrook and Jeff Green. And then they leave. And, I, you know, there's so many different reasons. It was awful that the Seattle lost the Sonics and... We did a whole podcast about it at the ringer called Sonic Boom about how it was a straight stealing. It was a hijacking. But the the this alternate universe where they just figure it out. You know, you think like in New England where the Patriots almost go to Seattle, St. Louis, and then at the last second they don't and they stay in all these Super Bowls they win. There's this alternate reality where they just figure out the Seattle ownership situation. They stay. And he becomes the biggest athlete in the history of Seattle. And Seattle is the team that wins some of the titles. And he's bigger than Russell Wilson there. And at the same time, there's all this Amazon money and all this stuff pouring in. And it's basically like they're, what happened to Golden State in the 2010s with Curry and Joe Lacob, all that stuff could have been happening in this parallel universe in Seattle. And instead, the, bat, the team's just gone. Anyway, it's, uh, it's really weird to think about 
that Durant played for one year in the Seattle Supersonics and then was gone. Yeah, I just get sad thinking about it. I really do. Um, but, you know, the, the, there's a couple lessons in there. Whenever this new ownership thing comes in and it's it's like iffy immediately, you know, and you go, wait a minute. And then like when somebody's from somewhere else and they buy the team, you know, that's not always a great sign. I'm not saying it obviously isn't happening all the time. But another lesson, too, is when the Pats threatened to move to St. Louis, that was a little more real. But when they threaten to move to Hartford, the, the, the rule should be there is that if your franchise threatens to move to Hartford, you're probably good. Yeah. The St. Louis thing, it seemed like they were leaving. And not just that, but I think, you know, Boston, I was living there at the time. And I was certainly really devastated at the thought of them leaving. But it also almost felt like a mercy killing in some ways if they left. The team had been such a train wreck. That it was like, ah, I, you know, maybe it just wasn't meant to be here. That was not the case with the Sonics. They had great fans. They had the legacy of the 79 title. Totally. And, and, just, yeah. and two years before in the 05 playoffs, they'd had a really kind of fun little two-round run where it was just like the place was electric. And uh, it's, it's really sad. So one other thing with Seattle that is important with this draft, they make a big trade that ends up paving the way for the 2008 finals championship team. That was not Seattle. It was the Boston Celtics, a trade that I despised at the time. I am not saying I batted a thousand with this draft. I got the Durant thing, right? I missed a lot of other stuff. I hated this Ray Allen trade uh, on draft night. The Celtics trade number five, Delonte West, Wally Serbiak's uh, semi expiring contract for Ray Allen and the, uh, and a high second round pick that became Glenn Davis. I wrote at the time, I wrote, I just spent the last 20 minutes on basketballreference.com trying to find one great shooting card that didn't decline significantly in years 12 through 14 of his career. Here's the list. Reggie Miller, that's it. Um, I also asked, are we really contending for the title in 2008 or 09 with Pierce Jefferson, Ray Allen, Doc Rivers, and nine unproven young guys? And then my dad's take was, make sure you put in your column that we traded the fifth and seventh picks in consecutive years for a point guard who was too short and a shooting guard who was too old. Put that in your column. I hate this trade. All right. I have I have a two-parter on this one. I was in the building. I was at the garden for the draft party. They had a draft party at the garden that wasn't at the practice facility that year. And I was there doing TV for Comcast. So this was like the stretch when I was doing all the Celtics TV seasons. And I sat down with Mike Gorman. And Gorman's like, what do you think? And I was like, I don't get it. Like, I don't get it because it was all it made all the sense in the world once the Garnett thing happened. But like it, it made sense, like positionally, then you're going, OK, like this is how it's going to work out. And, and the weird kind of secret about the Ray Allen part of KG and Pierce being there is that it messed up Ray because Ray wasn't just somebody who you stuck in the corner. He had always been kind of shooting with the ball in his hand. So it was really hard for Ray Allen at first to like it wasn't this perfect fit. He had to do. He had to do it differently in a way that he had never done it before, where Pierce could still do what he wanted to, and Garnett could always do what he wanted to, because Garnett was always a guy that would still actually, as great as he was, was more willing to defer than most superstars of his era. And so when it just felt like it was Ray Allen and all the money that he was owed, and that he had had these ankle things, and that he was a bad defensive player, and that Pierce hadn't really wanted to play much defense because the team was declining, it just felt like, okay, you're going to have Pierce, who's probably underrated throughout much of his career. But at that time, like, you didn't know if he wanted to stay. 
He had signed a longer contract. I had interviewed him where I said, you know, did you want out? And he goes, no, I never wanted to do that. And then I just don't think he wanted to make it public because back then actually guys cared about making it public and didn't right. want to seem like the bad guy. Now no one cares, which I'm not saying one's better than the other. But it was when it was just Ray and Pierce, Bill, I don't think it was wrong to go, what is this? What we didn't realize is that Jeff Green was going to be every franchise's new hope and trading Jeff Green, despite some of the numbers that I know we'll get to, it wasn't really that big of a deal because this was a four-person draft. Well, actually, to be fair, it was, it was well, you know, I don't know. It depends on where your cutoff is, but there's four guys. There's four guys. And so moving Jeff Green at the time, he was 6'9", he can handle all these, you know, you liked him, but you didn't, you weren't really giving up something as much as maybe you thought in 2007. At the time, it was two guys, then Al Horford, and then it dropped off again. And there was some Mike Conley, Joakim Noah, um, Jeff Green, Yijin Lan. Um, People like Corey so I, Brewer. Yeah, the, yeah. so I think that was, he was in the third tier. The thing, the thing we didn't realize, just because I don't think a lot of us were sophisticated enough about some of these numbers yet. First of all, Ray's four Seattle seasons were, looking back, like kind of amazing. He's almost 25 a game. He's taking seven F threes a game. He's shooting 39%. Um, his, his shooting percentages were 44, 39 and 90. And, you know, he was, he was either at the end of his prime or hitting wh whatever he was going to become. But Reggie Miller was a really good parallel because Reggie Miller was somebody who was able to extend that part of his career in a long way. Ray Allen did it better than Reggie did. So that was one thing. The other thing, and Danny, I, I, I hesitate how much credit to give to him for this, but he clearly deserves some because he knows if I have Pierce and I have Ray Allen, I might have enough left to get KG. Cause at this point we know KG is on the block. We know he's getting shopped. We know only a couple teams have that have a chance to get him, And so the reason I hesitate to give credit is because GM sometimes it's third and 16 and it's the Mahomes Super Bowl play, right? Where you're just like, all right, Tyreek Hill, just, just let's run that button hook play and I'm just going to heave it and I'll take my seven step drop. I'm heaving it. Hopefully you'll catch it. I feel like that was the KG trade and it was brilliant, but there was also no guarantee they were going to get him. And if they didn't get him, I don't know what this Ray Allen, Paul Pierce, Al Jefferson nucleus ultimately is for the next couple of years. And you're treading water with a 48 win team. So it sets up the Hail Mary. They completed the Hail Mary, but there's also a very good chance the Hail Mary would not have been completed. So Ray had played 55 games a year before that, and then three years before that, he played 56. Um, so that's 56 in his 28-year-old season, 55 in his 31-year-old season. So the Celtics getting him at 32. And at that time, I mean, he had to have been a max guy. I mean, he was 16, 18, 19. Yeah, so I mean, he was making major money at the back end of the extension that he'd signed in Seattle. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. But the Garnett part of it, he had to have known. He had to have known because it was McHale. And the thing that always gets forgotten in all this is how bad did McHale screw this up? Like KG wants out, but KG didn't want to be the bad guy in Minnesota. And as we've learned now, what, a decade plus later that KG was told like he'll be part of this thing. And that fell through that he was going to maybe be brought back in some ownership role. And so he was like, you know, he's mentioned recently he's out on the tailor. But if you're McHale, you have to get that asset. Like, forget what Jeff Green ends up becoming or the picks beyond that. 
you end up trading Garnett after Ainge has already traded a lottery pick. <laughs> right. So what what are you doing? And you know, there's no way Ainge at that point can say, "Hey, I'm trading for KG, but I'm not giving you the fifth pick." Like you're doing whatever you can. So um, that's a mistake on Mikhail's part. But I'd have to think that Ainge, because we had, I think you and I, we were just kind of, we'd been talking very very infrequently, but I think even you and I were emailing prior to that one where I was like, I'm hearing this KG thing is done to Boston. But again, it was, it was a moment where it was before, and then it was a moment where it was after. And so in KG, by the way, he got a three-year max extension from the Celtics site unseen too. So that quickly changed his motivation for how little he, or how much he wanted to be in Boston. So I'm going to defend the, the trade McHale made with the Celtics. Has anyone done that before? Um, well, I've, I've talked about like what the other options were because people have made it out to be that McHale just hooked up his buddy, which definitely happens in this league. But go ahead. So Al Jefferson was a legit commodity. We talked about him in a previous redraftables, but he was really good. I mean, and he's somebody, he hurt his knee and he still made an all-NBA team after that. I think he was uh, guaranteed 21 and. 12 guy for a long time. So he wasn't chopped liver. The biggest thing with that trade, there was Gerald Green was in there who still had a lot of value from the year before. He was a lot of like, value, a lot well, of value. I, th I think he was considered to be a first round pick, right? There was another first <laughs> round pick. Right. Okay. But here's the big thing. And this is the part everyone forgets. The Celtics had Minnesota's first round pick that they could roll over in either 08 or 09. That pick eventually became the number five pick in the 2009 draft, which was Johnny Flynn. So part of the motivation and part of the reason Minnesota wanted to trade with Boston is because if they're going to get rid of KG, they're going to rebuild. It's hard to rebuild if you don't have your own top five lottery pick in one of the next two drafts. Danny was had that from the Ricky Davis trade. Remember that trade? Um, yeah. And, and was dangling that. And I think that ultimately got it done, other than the fact that, honestly, McHale just didn't want to trade with the Lakers. It would have been, what was it, Bynum and Odom for, for I don't KG remember. and maybe some future first-round picks, something like that. And he just, he he was <laughs> wanted to trade with the Celtics. The team that screwed up was Phoenix. Phoenix screwed up. They would have had him. Phoenix they, they was the one right. that should have had him. He wanted yeah. to go there. It would have been perfect. I mean, he and Nash... Who knows what would have happened? Because Garnett's the kind of guy that you don't really appreciate as much unless you're watching him every single night. And then you watch him every night and you go, okay, this is like, this is just different. Um, but and I think I think the issue is KG had a trade kicker. I've talked to Nash about this in the past. It was Stoudemire was in the trade. I think it might've been Stoudemire and Marion together because they had to add up the salaries for the KG trade kicker. And then Minnesota had to throw in something else. And, and I think Phoenix just didn't want to take on the money was what it came down to. But- they ended up giving away Marion, or not giving him away, but they traded him for Shaq the following season because Marion was making like 17, whatever. Amari was making whatever he was making. I think there was some weird sour thing, but it's it easily could have been KG on the Suns, you know, and, and then I don't know what happens to the Celtics team. So anyway, all right, we put a bow on that. A couple other plots from this draft. Um, Yi Jinlan, or Yi Jinlan, I think you pronounce it E. He, um, he, I, I'm not positive he worked out against a chair. I remember seeing it. 
There's a lot of chair remember, jokes in your Chad Ford piece. I made a lot of jokes about it, and then it might it might be half urban legend, but I definitely saw it. He definitely worked out, and there was a chair in my dad, and I saw it. Um, but it turned out he uh, was chair won the second round. But. Chair the chair definitely fought back. He dominated the 19 and under championships, but was 22 at the time. Seems like a red flag. Um, <laughs> was another guy. This Are you saying he's the, the Danny Omonte of, yeah, of international little, basketball? Little Danny Omonte-ish. <laughs> There's a specific type of guy that teams have missed on in the draft really for 40 years. And it's it's the Ejilan type of body where it's like too tall where he has to be a power forward basically or maybe even a center, but not aggressive. Can't rebound, can't play defense. Good, potentially a good scorer. Don't really know what he is, but th this guy over from Brad Sellers, you know, going all the way through it to Asian Lan, these guys always pop up and nobody kind of knows what to do. And now in the draft, I think they get penalized. Nobody wants like the six foot 11 scoring forward who is just a zero in every other aspect of the game. We didn't totally know that in 07, right? No, because I, I still think there were, there were parts of, of you where you, were like, you know, all these things were positives. He was he was a perimeter player, but he was big. Um, and I'm not talking about jacked Gillian, because later on you were like, this guy looks like he's late yeah, 80s, what early early 90s Oakland A's. But uh, <laughs> there were there were work. I mean, you're right. I mean, he wouldn't work out. He didn't want to go to Milwaukee, um, which is ultimately where he ended up. There was all sorts of stuff. Dan Fagan was his agent back then, and Fagan was. Um, really putting the pressure on certain franchises being like don't even don't even show up like we don't he's not going to play there um there was a lot of i was i was calling around on this draft because it's it's more recent memory as opposed to some of the other ones but the amount of agent power that was going on back then still probably stronger than today i mean the agents still were controlling so much of this and they wanted ye in a bigger market they wanted to do all these different things and it just didn't work out, even though he had like a, an O. I mean, is it okay to say that his rookie year was somewhat pro promising, or was it the kind of thing you looked at and went, wait a minute, this is a huge mistake? Um, because his rookie year was his best year, and it's not like it was some amazing advanced stats year. But uh, I think there was still this foreign. I got to be thing. honest. I, I was out the entire time. I was never right. at any point enamored or interested. He couldn't. Sh he couldn't shoot three pointers, but wasn't really a post. I, I just didn't know what he was. He just didn't. Yeah, make but what sense were you watching? What were you watching to be able to? Are you saying you were out because he was the unknown? Because I still think there was a little hangover of the unknown here, where it was like considered like Eastern block guys. It's like, all right, let's start drafting unknown Asian guys really high. No, I'm saying when he was actually on the Bucks, and I would see him on League Pass, and I would just be like, what is this? Like, even you look at his stats, he's a 42 per. For for his career, he's a forty percent shooter, and wasn't a three point shooter either, and didn't really rebound. So it's like, so what are you? You're six foot eleven. <laughs> so you've no low post game. You can't shoot, and you're not a rebounder defender. I don't know. I I thought it was really a bonkers thing. We we forgot to mention talking about the Celtics. This is this, yeah. We should do some more Celtics. No, no, just quickly. <laughs> They're, they have, what, a 40% chance to get a 
one of the top two picks, something like that, 33% chance? Was that it? Are, are you asking me to confirm? They change the percentages like every few years, so I don't remember off the top of my head. It was yes. at least 33%, and everybody's hopes that, you know, it had been a really bad run dating back to the Reggie Lewis dying, the whole thing. And, and then when they got the fifth pick in the lottery and they had no chance to get Odin or Durant, it was like rock bottom. I have a really sad column in my archives where it's just like, oh my God, like are the, are the Celtics ever going to be relevant ever again in my lifetime? It was one of those. And that fifth pick ironically turns into Ray Allen and then number five KG. And within a year they win the title. I'm telling you, this was inconceivable in May, 2007. It was, if you told me 13 months later, you're going to be celebrating the title. I would have been like, what happened? Did, did the other teams like leave the league? How did we do this? So I was at Comcast that night for the lottery and the excitement in that building that day leading up to the lottery was unbelievable. And Kevin Miller, who I referenced before, was just the guy, you know, putting putting all these shows together, and, and, a, and a guy became a close friend. And you know, he's just going like, "All right, you know, what's it just for business? What does this mean, landing Odin or Durant?" And then there's a bunch of younger employees there where it's like, "Hey, they may add ten headcounts to the company this season." And like people, I don't know if you ever watch uh, Christo Doyle's Gold Rush. Um, but I've, I've always been a huge fan of the show, although one of the miners started annoying me enough that I, I kind of was out on it, checking out a little bit. But early on, the Hoffman crew would always screw up, but the grandfather was always so optimistic and they'd have like another bad day sluicing and they'd be around the campfire and the grandfather would like look at all the people and all the families that were staying there in their RVs and he'd be like, you're all millionaires. It's just in the ground, you know? And the kids would be like, does that mean we can have shoes? And like, does that mean we're going to get a new truck? You know, and everybody be so hopeful because everyone was so positive. And after they landed five in the lottery, the looks on, and I wasn't full-time either, the looks on the faces of the employees who were going like, if it went one or two, I get health insurance. I have a steady paycheck. I have like, I can finally stop living. Ch-. And we're looking around going, this is over. <laughs> like <laughs> nothing. And for it to go from that to a title, is, as you said, impossible, but, but always a great reminder of how often in sports when you think you want, I mean, look, it can apply to life, how often you want this thing or this job or this move or you need something to work out for you. And when it doesn't work out, it ends up being the best thing that could have ever happened. I think five, the odds of them getting the fifth pick in this draft were like 2% or something. It was almost Would you do this? Impossible. Let what? me ask you this. You can't have the 2008 title but you have Durant. Oh, in a heartbeat, I'd take Durant. Just see what you figure I'd take Durant in the uncertainty. Yeah, I'd give up 08 for Durant. You know what's funny about that, that whole month, though? The Durant, the Celtics fans, we were so confident that this was going to work out that there were actual, like, talk radio debates <laughs> and TV debates to be like, who should the Celtics I was take doing them. Durant? <laughs> I was doing them. They I- didn't even have a pick yet. It was like, who should they take? And then they get five. Um, to five. put a ball on the- five and like you're coming around on Al Horford going, oh my God, like, you know, you're you not even say- getting him. You don't want to say it out loud. And then, you know, there Conley had some concerns, but you were like, Conley's clearly four. the more you watched it. And, you know, there were knocks on him. So I think there was clearly, you know, the gap between Horford and Conley, but then you go five, five to put a bow on this. 
It's in my office. You've seen it. I have their envelope from this draft. Somebody at ESPN, he grabbed it after the, uh, after the lottery. He grabbed the number five with the Celtics logo in it, and he mailed it to me. And he's like, hey, I thought you should have this. And I kept it. And it turned out to be a good luck thing. Let's take a break to talk about the original light beer, Miller Lite. It's always been there to bring people together in real life through Miller time. And maybe getting together with a few friends in real life isn't as easy of an option as it was five months ago, a year ago, whatever. Miller Lite can still be enjoyed with your people. Figure it out. Social distancing drinks, maybe a little outdoor bar. Everyone's seated five, six seats apart. Zoom drinks, whatever you want to do. I've had some Zoom drinks lately. I actually feel more connected with with a lot of my friends than I have in the past, just because we're all so freaking bored. Miller Lite, the original light beer that tastes great. It's less filling, which means it won't get in the way of enjoying time with your people. I'm on the record. It's been my favorite beer since... Um, since I was allowed to start drinking beer. Miller Lite, the original light beer. While you're home, enjoy a classic available for delivery today. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories, 3.2 carbs per 12 ounces. Back to the 2007 redraftables. Couple other things from this draft. Yijin Lan went three picks ahead of Joachim Noah which caused me to write uh, a few years ago, we're never going to run out of gasoline, internet space, or dumb NBA teams. I still feel that way. We're always going to have at least five really dumb teams. Um, the Hawks <laughs> took Al Horford at number three. We were so skeptical of any decision they were going to make with anything. We were, people were actually nervous they were going to fuck it up. And then they actually did the right thing. But it was like, it was one of those things where it's like, it seemed perfectly reasonable they were going to take Yijin Lan over Al Horford. We all knew Al Horford was going to be good. He was, to be a short thing, I didn't think he was going to be a multi-time All-NBA guy, but he was clearly somebody who could be like the third best guy on a title team. Didn't you feel that way? I loved him. And look, I like him still. And I know that, you know, people try to knock him at the end and he's taking the brunt of all the Philly criticism and he was never going to be yeah. good enough, I think, for Boston fans when he gets that when he got that contract. And it's like, well, wait a minute, if he's a max guy and everybody talks about how great he is, how come he can't make a big shot at the end of games? And I think some of that stuff is fair. I think some of it's unfair. Look, I, I like Al Horford so much. I have a cell phone number. I've never texted him. That's how much I respect him. I, I don't even I won't even text him to ask him if he wants to come on and do anything, even though I've interviewed him a couple of times. Remember, there were two other things um, because of all these Florida guys. It was like, which order are they going to go? And you remember there was that leak thing of Billy Donovan supposedly saying between Noah and Horford. He was like, if anybody thinks that it's close, it isn't. And so I think I, because I was becoming pro Horford, became a little anti Noah. And we'll get to Noah later, so I'm not going to use all this stuff now. But, I mean, I ended up loving Noah for a bunch of different reasons. But Noah's agent at the time was trying to orchestrate where he was going. And a team that was in the lottery that I did talk to today said the agent actually told this GM about, I mean, Noah's his client. And he goes, he doesn't love basketball. So just a heads up, you know, rich dad, prep school, you know, he's not. Oh, wow. Like to imagine think. Like, imagine ever describing Joe Kim Noah as somebody that doesn't love basketball, because I would argue every time he's been on the court, he's loved it as much as anyone that he's ever going up against. And Noah ended up being somebody that I, I ended up liking a lot more. But I, I did had, I had a bit of this anti Noah thing. And then Noah, Noah went from like, could he be the number one pick the year before to right. 
whoa, like this guy's going to go 10, 9 or 10. Like, how did that happen? So you it, know, was, it was like a weird correction on Noah. That's a good point because he almost came out in 06 and he would have been probably a higher pick in that crappy 06 draft than he was here. Here was the draft order for the people listening. Portland was one. Seattle was two. And it's funny because if they were going to fix the lottery, this was the lottery to fix for the Celtics, right? You wouldn't have gone Portland, Seattle as your top two. So all the lottery conspiracy people took a big hit. Atlanta was three. Memphis was four. Celtics five. Milwaukee six. Minnesota seven. And Minnesota coming off the disastrous where they they flip Brandon Roy for Randy Foy. And at that point, it, it's clear Brandon Roy is going to become something. KG's unhappy. Mikhail, nobody knows why he's still there. They're a mess. Charlotte is eight. Chicago is nine. Okay, why is Chicago nine? The Eddie Curry trade. Yet again, more another another top 10 lottery pick for uh, from the Eddie Curry trade. And as it turned out, there's a huge drop-off after nine. It goes Sacramento, Atlanta, Philly, New Orleans, Clippers. But uh, Noah, who goes nine in this draft, and after that, it goes Spencer Hawes, AC Law, Thaddeus Young, Julian Wright, Al Thornton, Rodney Stuckey, Nick Young. I mean, it it like goes off a clip. Top nine was Odin, Durant, Horford, Conley, Jeff Green, Ejin Lan, Corey Brewer, Brandon Wright, Joakim, Noah. Um, one crazy note about this draft which is even crazier than Durant having as many all-star appearances as everyone else in the draft combined. Durant has almost 23,000 points career. He scored 10,237 more points than anyone else in this draft. He's like, he like laps the draft class, which I remember. He doubles, thinking, he doubles like in Vorp. I mean, his win shares are bad. Yeah. I mean, it's not even close. It's ridiculous. A uh, couple comedy moments from the draft. Jay Billis called Greg Oden the ultimate high character guy. Not wrong. So not wrong. I I said in my draft hour, I might have gone with Gandhi there. <laughs> I don't know. It's tough. <laughs> Odin, Gandhi, I'm not sure. Uh, Mark Stein, as I was writing the draft diary, sent me an email about the Ray Allen trade that ended, quote, it could have turned out worse. So that was like, thanks, Mark Stein. That was the celebratory email I was hoping for. It could have turned out worse. The Celtics traded the fifth pick. Um, Detroit took Rodney Stuckey at 15, and Billis called him a poor man's Dwayne Wade. Well, it's if, if we use... <laughs> if, you know who loved, loved Stuckey? Chad Ford loved Stuckey. And we, we were, we were kind of like... We'd heard about that one. Stucky's not bad, by the way. I, he's arguably in this redraft in the lottery. Poor man's weight is a little strong. What if he's um, like broke outside all the time? Dwayne Wade. Somewhere in there. Yeah, somewhere yeah. in there. He's always on the move, Dwayne Wade. He's relocating again to, uh, I don't know, Oklahoma City. Uh, I wrote this in the draft. I was really impressed with myself. At 22, Charlotte takes my favorite sleeper, BC's Jared Dudley. I like Dudley, Big Baby Davis, Torian Green, and Aaron Brooks as my sleepers in the 20 to 45 range this year. I went three for four. You know what I loved? I loved reading Edgy Bill Simmons from 2007. No wonder. Uh, like, I missed that guy. I I... I was like, hey, this is why this guy's career took off. I just edge almost a, a bit of nastiness. You said Doc Rivers should be fired. 
Um, but then, oh, I was I was writing that for two years. I know, I know you were. And then you said they should replace him with Rick Carlisle, and then it got even worse because then Chad Ford rips Rick Carlisle and says that Carlisle would never get a letter of recommendation from any of his previous employers, including Larry Bird. Um, I guess I'm just I'm just saying. I, as I as I read that, and then you made fun of the Darko pick, which you should have, and then Chad defended the Darko pick, saying that Orlando Magic was going to pay him sixty million, and then you were like, "Sweet comeback, Chad!" <laughs> and uh, yeah, there was just there was just nastiness and edginess all over the place in this. I think that was the first time we did it, and it de- it definitely got contentious in a really fun way. <laughs> it and was- then the next the next year, I think he had joke writers because he was coming back strong. I think he had help the next year. No, and, and Chad's smart enough too because I remember it became like. It would probably be, you would know this. I bet you it was one of the five most clicked on pieces that ESPN would have over well, the course there was, of the year. There was a wrinkle with it. We were doing it in real time. So I, we would exactly. send the paragraphs, send it in. So it was like this actual evolving piece over the course of five hours and people would just reload it and it would do like crazy traffic. Now nobody would give a shit. Um, all right. So we're going to do the redraft. You want the first pick or the second pick? I just think because you were so right about this, you know, we all get, we, we get plenty of stuff wrong and we get ripped all the time for it, which is fine. But I think you deserve for you nailing this with the rant. Well, in 07, I took him first. I'm going to take him first again. Um, career, 27, 7, and 4. He's like a shade under being a 50, 40, 90 guy. Playoffs, 29, 8, and 4. 139 playoff games, an MVP, two finals MVPs, two titles, six first-team All-NBAs, three seconds. He is three second-place MVP finishes. And then there's also a really good what-if that what if Portland had taken him? What does that team look like? Because now you have him and LaMarcus Aldridge together. You get a couple years of Brandon Roy. Um, Portland definitely is spending to keep him the whole time. I don't know if they stumble into the Damian Lillard trade at that point. So who the fuck knows? But um, a lot of what ifs in every direction. But I would probably say, not on the, the Lillard thing. Probably not. I mean, it's just the ripple effect of this stuff. Yeah, they probably don't get him. One of the crazy things about this is the number two pick was always the jinx pick, right? That was always the pick where, you know, that was the Sam Bowie spot. That was the Lem Bias spot. It was just this unbelievably checkered history of bus and guys who got hurt and sad stories and you go on down the line and Durant was the guy who was going to break it. And then his story becomes sad. They end up moving from Seattle, Oklahoma city. So even him, the number two pick who's turned out the best, I think of anybody probably in the history of that spot. Um, even that's a sad story because he didn't stay in Seattle. So there you go. That's my number one pick. Who are you taking second? Can I tell everyone who's on the board here? Yeah. Well, we mentioned Joe Kim Noah and Al Horford. And Mike Conley, I th- and Marcus Saul, I think are our four guys on the board. That's that's who uh, that's who David Aldridge just reported you were looking at. Your guys, your team. Wow. Well, David Aldridge, uh, Aldridge has it covered, but I will go with Horford. Horford, you could argue should have been even better, considering it felt like he played out of position his whole career. Um, he was a straight up small forward, but he played center, and he. You know, I don't really think you can take. Gasol over him. Um, there's a Gasol argument that we'll get to here because he's going to go pretty quickly. He might even go next. But I just loved everything about Horford. and I loved him as a teammate, even though I didn't play with him, obviously. And uh, one team that took him out to dinner 
right before that draft, they were hoping to move up to get him because it was Atlanta. They're like, Atlanta will do something stupid. <laughs> they were just right. people circling, going, those guys will do something stupid. And they went out to dinner with Horford, and they go, this guy's already 30 years old in the head. Like, he's already that smart, already gets it that much. And they're like, there's no way we're going to be able to. He's just too impressive. It, it'd be one thing if you did a bad job breaking down the tape, but you're going to sit with him, and you're going to want him to be the guy on your team for the next 10 years. So uh, I'm not, I know he's not a superstar. I know, I know he's not the guy that I think people have always kind of wanted him to have be that next thing up. But I, uh, I think there's a lot of stuff that goes overlooked with him. So I'll go ahead and take him. We left out a huge caveat with Atlanta taking him at number three in real life. Phoenix had their pick. It was top three protected from the Joe Johnson trade. And during top that three, wow. During that season, which is the same season Horry shoves Nash into the side and they, and people think Phoenix could have won the title that year and who knows. And they had this pick that they could have traded and they could have packaged it with somebody else and tried to get one more awesome guy and just risk this pick because they didn't know for sure they're going to have it. They kept it. Great decision until Atlanta gets the third pick. It just, it vanishes. It goes away. So Atlanta went from we might not have this pick at all to they end up getting Al Horford, who they get eight, nine years out of uh, three conference finals for him. He made one third team all NBA from 10 to 14 to 16 and 10, 55%. I mean, his stats are impressive. I, I think what's interesting about him is how he evolved as the sport evolved, right? He, he started moving out further and further and became this kind of stretch five in a lot of ways offensively. I loved having him on the Celtics with all that said, I had Gasol number two on my board. So the case for Gasol. So you're taking um, him three? I'm taking him three. I would have taken him two. And the reason is this. I just think his ceiling was a little higher than Horford. You know, I, especially like you go to that 2011 Spurs Grizzlies series. And I thought that 2000, I think those 11, 12, 13, and 14 Spurs are good teams. And the 12 team, especially Kawhiser is a rookie, but you go all the way through all those teams are any of them had a chance to win any title each year. And, uh, and the Grizzlies really took it to them and it was really Gasol and it was Zebo going against Duncan, who still had most of his fastball at that point. Um, he made sec second team all NBA in 2013 and first team all NBA in 2015. That's pretty good. 2015 defensive player of the year. Uh, they won five series in five years at Grizzly. Most famously, they make the uh, 2013 conference finals. And then he ends up with this late career thing where he goes to the Raptors and wins the title. A beloved teammate by all accounts, much like Horford. And, uh, you know, I think he went 48th in this draft and was Powell's fat brother. He single-handedly saves the Pau Gasol trade from being probably the worst trade of the last 25 years. And the other thing that helps your argument is he didn't start until he was 24. And the first year he played, he's playing like 31 minutes a game. And you go, wait, what is this? The similarities between the two, at their peak, their positioning and just understanding of like half-court defense and help rules and, and that kind of stuff, incredible. Man, incredible to kind of like, you know, look, nobody's going to sit there and say, hey, I'm going to watch guys shading for help and see how great they are positioning. But that's what they did. But where Gasol 
the argument from going two here is that you probably feel like he's a guy you could dump it into in a big spot for a bucket more so than Horford. You know what's crazy? Horford played 846 games so far. Gasol's played 831. Gasol's basically averaged 15 and 8 and 3. Horford averaged 14 and 8 and 3. Horford's slightly better shooter, but their careers are about as similar as you could possibly get. Even win shares, Horford's 90.7, Gasol's 82.2. Uh, Vorp, Horford's 35.4 or 33.4, Gasol's 35.4. Um, it's razor thin. I, I think the edge has to go to the All-NBA. If, if Gasol was a first-team All-NBA guy, I have to give it combined with the uh, 2011 Spurs. So you're on the clock at four. Fourth pick, there's no debate, it's Conley. Do you want to guess what Conley's career assists per game are? I was wildly unimpressed by his career stats. <laughs> I couldn't I had, believe it. I had him fifth on my on my board. Wow. Wow, so I just, I'm not going to get my guy. All right, well, I'm taking Conley. I mean, Conley, I understand the, the all-star resume thing. It hasn't happened. That's not because he's not deserving. It's because it just didn't happen. The league is loaded with point guards, especially the West. Would you think of the years that Conley played? I love Conley. I know right now with the Jazz thing, it hasn't been good. That's not what we're doing here. I really, I'm surprised you think that it's a debate at four. Um, but longevity-wise, I'm, I'm going to take Conley over what I'm assuming is you going with Noah at five. Hold on, I'm talking to my guys. Just want to make sure we want to do this. Um, yeah, here's the thing with Connolly. I think it matters that he didn't make the all-star team. I think it matters that his career stats weren't that impressive or that even look at the playoffs, he's 17 and 7, 41% shooting. Um, you know, he won five series, obviously, because he was on Gasol's team. I never felt like he was one of the six or seven best point guards in the league at any time. And I kept coming back to Noah, who I think has been unfairly stigmatized by everything that happened from the moment he signs with the Knicks in 2016, right? It's just like now he's like contract bust, all the Knicks fans turn on him, all that stuff. But I think his nine years were really good there. And, you know, from 10 to 14, I'm taking him fifth, by the way. Is there any he's, way I can trade you six and eight? <laughs> yeah. Well, wait, 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 wait. Now you can yeah, trade yeah. me six, six, eight, and ten. I'm keeping Noah. Um, I would trade you every pick I have to take Noah next. He was. I don't want to take. Go ahead. He was double double constantly in the in the playoffs from nine to fourteen. He's basically eleven and eleven, almost three stocks, blocks plus steals. Ira was doing countdown in fourteen, and he was the first team All NBA. And I remember arguing on the show about it, where I was just like, "This guy's." the best center in the league. Like he, there is no other choice. He has to be. He was 13, 11 and five that year, five assists a game. They really tapped into something special with him. And here, here's what I think is the important point. He is probably the biggest victim other than Derrick Rose of that Derrick Rose knee injury in for how he would have been remembered this decade. Because you think like that 2012 bulls team, which I think would have gone toe to toe with Miami in a lot of ways. And then 13, 14, 15, Noah stays there. He's in the mix that whole time as like a final four playoff guy. And I always thought he was better in big games. And, and you could see the seeds of it in the 09 Bulls Celtics series. He was awesome in that series going against the KG list Celtics. Um, I just really liked his game. And, 
you know, I think like one of my favorite regular season games ever was when they ended Miami's 27 game winning streak. And it was basically him and it was um little Jimmy Butler, some Luau Dang. That was when Jimmy and, was little. And he was <laughs> he was uh he was just a gamer. I just gamer. He's, gamer. he's he's the ultimate gamer. Yeah. And, you know, when he first comes onto the scene, he's six points a game the first couple of years. And you're like, yeah, you know what? Like, why were people even talking about this guy Noah number one? Is I've already been over the timeline. Like, I had a I had a challenging timeline with Noah. Noah was fourth in MVP voting in 13-14, and it wasn't wrong. He won defensive player of the year. Um, I still remember him running up and down the court in that wizard series when the Bulls beat him, and I thought he was gonna die in the game. Like he was done. So there's a way to argue that he goes even higher if you wanted to say, is is Tibbs his coach or is it is it somebody else where maybe the end of Noah's career is different because he was never going to want to come out of a game. He was never going to tell you he was hurt. And look, LeBron deserves all the praise in the world. But the fact that Noah's like, I don't give a shit. Right. Like, I don't care. I know I'm Noah and I know you're LeBron. But like, what am I supposed to worship you when you're out here? Like, I'm trying to beat you and I don't give a shit. And all of these things about him where when I watched him at, at Florida, I'm like, what is this guy's deal? And then you, I don't know if it's it's us getting older or us appreciating more. I go, hey, what's the most important thing? Do you care? Do you want to win? He is all of those things. You want every basketball player to have that Noah DNA and for for him to care and for him to play that kind of defense and then not even care about shots like on top of that like he probably could have scored more but he didn't need to and then the assist numbers are so good i'm just like you i'm a huge noah fan it just sucks that it was basically over at like 29 years old maybe 28 years old i think there was a little burning the candle hard on both ends that probably didn't help that probably sped up the uh the career there but now, or some but, would say that he was it was good that he could get his mind right and you know get away from the stress of uh NBA life. Oh, there you go. I would just rather have nine years of Noah than twelve years of Connolly. Now Yeah, but the I, Noah thing, even though Noah's coming back with the Clippers, like it's been done now for a while. No, it's been done. I know. So and Conley's still going. And one thing also to be fair about the Conley assist numbers that are incredibly underwhelming, and people are gonna listen and go five point seven a game for his career. They did run so much stuff through Gasol. It wasn't like he was coming down the court every single time dictating everything they were doing, too. It's fair. You get three extra Conley seasons if you take him over Noah. I just like the ceiling of Noah a little bit more. All right. You're on the clock at six. We, By the way, for everyone scoring at home, get ready to fall off a cliff with the 2007 draft because it's about to happen. Hey, what's the number one sign of a bad home security system? A home security system that's so complicated you never use it. It's exactly the type of security system Simply Safe has spent a decade fighting against. They believe simple is safer. It's why Simply Safe is the home security for right now when feeling safe at home has never been more important. That's true. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24-7. Order online with a click of a button, open the box, place the sensors, plug it in. Your home is protected around the clock. No technician or salesperson has to come and disrupt your house. You don't need to pay any outrageous monthly fees or sign a multi-year contract. 24-7 professional monitoring. Emergency dispatch. It all starts at 50 cents a day. That's a deal considering Simply Safe was named, quote, best overall home security of 2020 by U.S. News and World Report. They have been a sponsor on our podcast for many years. Uh, People in my life have it, including me, including nephew Kyle. 
If you have experience with Simply Safe, you know how great it's been. Head to simplysafe.com slash BS. Simply Safe with two eyes. Get a free HD camera. If you're one of my listeners, simplysafe.com slash BS to make sure that they know our show has sent you back to the 2007 redraftables. This is so funny because um, I'm about to take somebody I don't want to take because literally everybody is somebody I don't want to take now. Um, I would my, I, my feelings would be hurt if you didn't take your guy here. I'm not taking him. I'm not taking him. I'm not taking him. I'm not taking him. <laughs> Who are you taking? <laughs> I'm taking his twin career brother in Thaddeus Young. That's who I had here too. Now, I don't want to, because you sent me a text today saying, Thaddeus Young, much better numbers than you would think. And I go, no, no, no. Continue to think that he wasn't that great. Because every time you got Thaddeus Young, you're like, look at the range. Look at look at how he could shoot a little. Give me a couple boards. Lefty. Thaddeus Young's still only 23 years old, by the way. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know. <laughs> He's only 31, okay? Thaddeus Young is only 31 years old. But, you know, he had a couple of years with those bad Philly teams. A couple of those Philly teams were close to 500. The rest of them were bad. And then Hinky took over and it got much worse. But he was like 15 to 18 a game. He's got a couple like 18 to 19 PER seasons. So, you know, I think everybody always wanted to be a little bit better because of the eye test, because of the tools, because he could shoot. He's, an, he's all these things. I feel like he was underwhelming, but I can't really argue for any of the guys to jump him here in the sixth pick. I think I changed my opinion on him probably 230 times over the course of 10 years. Cause there'd be some games where you'd watch him and you'd go, man, Thaddeus Young's really good. I, I always forget. And then you, and then there's another game and you'd be like, Hey, is Thaddeus Young, has he been out there the whole time? Or did he just get here? Did he just show up for the fourth quarter? Or was he here the whole time? He's just one of those guys, which is so funny that he's in the draft with Jeff Green. Yeah, and Thaddeus Young I, could have been the 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 support group. He could have been another one of these guys. Because you he's know, like right lefty now, Jeff Green, you're listening, going, "Hey, did you know Thaddeus scored like 17 a game last year?" And you're like, "Oh, what did he shoot it from three? Oh, 34 percent. And how tall? Oh, that's amazing." And just like you said, he is he is uh, invisible for for too many stretches. So, well, amazingly, this would have been a good trivia question for the people at home. Who is the second highest? I already scorer? knew. What, I already knew what the answer was. Career points. Second highest career points guy in this draft, and it was Thaddeus Young. He would have been like <laughs> my seventh guess. So yeah, crazy. I can't remember a single Thaddeus Young moment other than the 2012 <laughs> Sixer Celtics series. Can you? I, no, it's not a knock. I'm not against him. I just like if you were like, give me your top three Thaddeus Young moments, I'd be like, uh, I don't know. You know, it'd be a great series if you were an artist, like a painter where you would just paint the first, like the blink image that comes to your mind of a player's career. And I'm not talking like LeBron, you know, throwing it down. Maybe it's LeBron layup against the Pistons. I mean, look, it can be a million other things from Miami. But if I were an artist and a painter, I would just have a painting of Thaddeus Young standing in the corner with his arms on his hips. Just waiting for waiting, waiting for the wait, ball to swing. Yeah, waiting for a corner three. Yeah. 50% career shooter. Oh, shit. So I'm up now at seven. Do it. I, I so badly don't want to do it. You have to. Or you c could do something else. I have to do it because it, it, 
I have to stick to I'm our job is to represent how the draft should go, and there's no way to avoid it. So somehow I end up with Jeff Green here at number seven. He's back in my life. Um, he's played for nine teams. Nine teams, seventy million. He uh, from 2009 to 15 averaged 15 and five. He was involved in the uh, watershed, but not really Perkins for Jeff Green trade. That if you undo it for both sides, I think both teams are probably better off because then OKC doesn't feel like they have to integrate Perk. And then, uh, and then Boston doesn't end up keeping their fingers crossed with Jeff Green. He also isn't there in 2012, which always gets forgotten when LeBron and the Heat finally get by the Celtics. They got Michael Pietras playing for the Celtics like big chunks of time because Jeff Green had the heart issue. He misses that whole season, which um, really hurt the Celtics because Jeff Green actually used to play well against Miami. So uh, he was involved in the... Ray Allen trade that we talked about. He was involved in that Perkins trade. He was involved in that incredible Tayshawn Prince and a first-round pick for Jeff Green, Boston-Memphis trade that seemed like it was going to give Boston a top-five pick. And then John Morant shows up this year and ruins the pick. So now it'll be between 14 and 17. And then was traded to the Clippers for another first-round pick that they eventually sent to Philly that became Matisse Thibel. So somehow, every time he gets traded, it turns into uh, a huge carrot. But one of the most frustrating players I've ever rooted for, there would be a night where he would just look like the best player in the league, and then there would be another night where he would have two points and three rebounds, and you would just question everything. And uh, and I can't believe I just took him. Yeah, you have to. But Game 7, Celtics, 2018, 19 points. Yeah, and you're right. eight boards. And that's the other weird thing about his career. He His second season... He averaged 16 and a half, seven boards, two assists, 45% from the floor, 39% from three. And then he just stopped rebounding. Like he just stopped doing it. Um, and so whenever I think about like that Cleveland game, like he'd always have one dunk every few months to suck people back in. He'd be coming like left wing, two dribble hard, up poster, three guys. And you'd be like, I'm back in. And it was just, he's like a drug. And yeah, I remember, I remember Tommy would go, he would have like one of those dunks and Tommy would be like, he reminds me of James Worthy. And yep. I'd be like, yeah, you're right. You're not wrong. He does look like James Worthy. If we were going to say what player looks the most like James Worthy in the league right now, it would be Jeff Green. And then I the would, part. <laughs> I, I would have every time he ended up on another team though, I would talk to somebody with the team or I'd talk to somebody in the family. So instead of like saying, I talked to, whichever teams I'll just like Chris Vernon, right. When they got him in Memphis, he's like, no, no, no. I go, no, no. I go, I get it. Like you're excited. You're, you're a huge Memphis fan and you want this to work. I know you do deep down in your heart. You feel like this is going to work, but I've been watching him more than yeah. you have. And I'm just telling you, you're going to end up being really disappointed. No, no, no. Okay. I, I was just like, everybody would do it. Cause I did, when he went to Orlando, I talked to a guy down there and I'm not talking like this was actually somebody with the team. And every time he'd go to another team, the person that just acquired him would try to talk me into why it was awesome. And I would just go, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. No, I, I got it. Yeah, yeah. Let me know. Just, just, you can text me in two months. Let me know how you feel. And, and people would always talk like, by all accounts, great guy. Oh, everybody loves him. I remember watching him in college at Georgetown. One game that I, I remember 
just being like, wow, this guy's really talented. This, this, it'll be really interesting to see what he becomes, but it really could be something great. And then you would see him the next day and be like, see a lottery pick. So it was like, even in Georgetown, it was still this yin yang with it. And, you know, I, he just could never totally put it together. But I think that 2012 season is probably the big what if for him. You're on the clock at number eight. Okay. My guy is ninth in career points in this class. Wow. He, he is 10th in win shares. And I always thought he was pretty good. And that's uh, Aaron Aflalo. He had a stretch from Denver through Orlando to even, well, I mean, you know, the Knicks, he had that one year there. But he could shoot it. For his career, he's 39% from three. He could defend. Um, and I, I think he's a little underrated. And I'm going to go with Aflalo. True or false? I once wrote an entire column about him. True, because wasn't it... Um, did you either want him on the Celtics or was it in the aftermath of the Bynum trade where everybody no. ended up with a million different pieces? Okay. During not, the... Uh, not during those. the end of the 2011 lockout, December 2011 at Grantland first year, I decided to do a series called like the 12 days of NBA Christmas. I tried to write 12 columns and I don't know how many days it was. It might've been like over the course of two 12 weeks. 12 days, I hope. No, it wasn't because I didn't write on the weekends. Um, and one of the columns was about Aaron Aflalo is going to get over $50 million a year. And here's the case why. And Not a year, but what, a new deal. Or a, a new contract, yes. Yeah, so Just like I knew you were right. Um, and the case was, first of all, that we knew the cap was going to, you know, teams are going to be in there. But also, like, and if you go back and you read the column, I'm spelling out how bad the two-guard position is. And it was like, we, this is not the days of Michael Jordan and Clyde Drexler. Those days are gone. Like here, here's what this position actually looks like. Now we have no good two guards and I'm laying out all the guys like you make Casey's like one of the, the fourth best two guard in the entire league. And what's interesting is over the next, I would say four or five years that completely flips and that becomes this loaded position again, right? Cause Harden enters the league and Clay Thompson starts making an impact, so on and so on. But at the time, it seemed really justifiable to overpair and follow because that was like a position that it was really hard to find good guys. So I'm with you. I, I thought he was better than people remember. And I actually, I'm not sure why his career didn't last longer at, you know, he was like at his, at his peak, probably like a 16 points a game near 40% three. He, he was a good defender and I'm not sure why that didn't last. I don't know if he had health issues or what. Yeah, I would rather at this point, you know, as you're going to picks nine to the end of the lottery, like, give me what your five peak years are over an accumulation of 12. Uh, right. So that's why I'm taking Wilson Chandler with the next pick. See, that's smart. Um, I have him on my board. From 09 to 17, he was 15 and 5, 34%. Just an early 3 and D guy. Uh, you, never felt, you never felt awesome if he was closing a game for you and you were a playoff team, which he was in that position with Denver. But he was a guy who could be, you know, a seventh man on a really good team. So he's the best I'm going to do there. I think that was an Isaiah Thomas pick, by the way. Um, all right, you're on the clock at 10. I think it's worth mentioning a few names that could be out there. where We're not hmm. giving away each other's board. Uh, yeah. Rod Rodney Stuckey is still there. If you want some peak Rodney Stuckey. 
Uh, I think he's better set as a poor man, Dion Waiters. Yeah. But then you got Rudy Fernandez, who was good. And maybe if you draft him in this scenario, he doesn't go back to Spain after four years. Where Frustrating. Lo- yeah. Four years in, he's like, I'm out of here. Um, Rudy, Rudy was, by the way, that was when the Portland fans really started to lose their mind as the internet was really forming into <laughs> Blazer's Edge was taken off and they were so mad about the Odin Durant thing. So you, I would put like some Rudy Fernandez trade rumor to mailbag and it would be like coyotes coming out of the wilderness. Fuck you. We're not trading Rudy. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> like they were lunatics, but they loved Remember how much they loved Rudy Fernandez? Yes, I do. Portland's, um, I actually, you know what I love about Portland fans is that they have all the edge of of the jazz fans, but without the death threats. Yeah, they're lovable jazz fans. <laughs> the, the lovable yeah. anger of jazz fans. Yeah, like they, they, get, they get mad, but they still kind of get it where, you know, there's other fan bases where you just go, what, what are you doing? And of course, the, the funny part is, is that they ended up trading him anyway. Um, right after three years but he he was good i'm not telling you like he was sick but you could see like this guy you're not taking are you taking him no 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 i'm just saying like it's at least he's worth it you know there's another guy who i love who would have been if he had gotten his act together sean williams would have easily been a top 10 redraftable if he had been peak sean williams for much yeah but we we knew heading into that draft do not take him i think tiago splitter is somebody I like. I'd like to bring up Al Thornton because I was so right about that. I watched him so much, and I went, "None of this shit is going to work in the NBA." None. Well, of we it. also have we have uh, Jared Dudley, Corey Brewer, Big Baby, Carl Landry, Anthony, Anthony Tolliver, Tolliver, Anthony Nick, Tolliver, undrafted. Um, Nick you know Young. What I'm gonna do? Nick I think Young. I'm good. I think I'm good with Nick Young. I just worry about you know how is he gonna? Not that I'm anti Nick. I just worry about the younger guys today's generation. I'm gonna go with Bellinelli at ten. Ah, oh, that was my next pick. Yeah, I just did that Fuck. to you to mess with the whole. I just named everybody else, and then I knew I wasn't going to take any of them. I Bellinelli's gonna, good. I was going to take him over Chandler, but I thought I could get him <laughs> two picks later. Damn no, it. I did my work on this. Oh, man. Yeah, Bellinelli uh, f- averaged four threes a game in the 2010s, 38% from three, 11 points a game, and we know he could play on a good playoff team because he did. And... What I liked about him is at first you're like, what is this stuff? Like I remember breaking down his his Euro stuff and he would dribble like full speed out of bounds and throw a three-pointer in. And I'm like, what the hell is this? You're like, this guy's gonna need a little like horse breaking to get this guy. And I actually I remember I you know, I feel like when I first watched him, because I had some expectations for him because I did like him, I'm like, wait, is this guy out of control? And then I think he had it, he had to kind of like reinvent himself, which I was really impressed with. So Good heat check guy, good good spacer, and uh, and looked like Sly Stallone. So, all things I loved. Yeah, what else? I am on the clock. Is this eleventh or thirteenth? This pick? eleven. Wow, we got to make four more picks. <laughs> good lord. Take out, take out Thornton again. I can't take Nick Young. I'm sorry, Nick Young, but I can't take you. I'm going to take Carl Landry. Oh, Daryl's so proud of you right now. Because we're now at the point of this process where it's like, if you had two really good years, <laughs> I, that's about as good as I'm going to do now. Carl Landry from in 2010 averaged 18 a game. 
I guess he had one really good year. I feel like Damn. we thought he was better because Daryl was always telling us oh, how great he was. I thought he had two really good years. I, you no, know, I, no. I, hold on, I'm calling my guy back. I'm not taking. <laughs> wait a him. minute, wait a minute. No, no, I'm taking him back. I'm, I, I think this, I'm not taking this him. Never been done. No, no, he's no. off. No, no, he's at, no. I called. I don't, my I don't guy care back. if it's your company. I think you just drafted him. No, I recalled the pick. Hmm. All right, no, fine. that's been done. I'll, I'll take. Nah, we, who, you know what? It. Actually, go ahead because I want to know who else you want to take so badly that you're going to get rid of Landry. Nah, I'm gonna keep him. He 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 was a solid. You know, he was like a solid thirteen to sixteen points a game there for five years. Better today, probably too, because he was an undersized big. Then, what was it about? Was it his post defense that Daryl used to just freak out about? Well, he went. He went. Or was that the Chuck round? Hayes? Chuck, Chuck Hayes. Hayes is the post defense guy. I think. No, Landry was. He had knee issues, so he fell. And yeah. then uh, it was just a classic, put him in and the guy could get buckets. So, all right, I'll take him. I, it's Corey, not like anybody else is good. Corey Brewer's still out there. Um, yeah, sure. Tiago Splitter. Tiago Splitter, I feel like, needs at least to be mentioned here, but um, it's really down to a couple of I'm going to go ahead and take Dudley. Dudley, who I would say he and Sean Marshall on those BC teams were probably my most disliked duo of any college basketball team I've ever seen. That's still me, Peak St. John's. Well, probably not even Peak St. John's then, but I, I watched those guys in person. I watched them on TV, and I could not stand just anything about them. I couldn't stand them. And Dudley did what so many players can't do. It's like, hey, guess what? I'm never going to be the first, second, third option. I need to figure something out starts making some threes and to this day is still somebody that if you like we're not going to get killed if we have to play him some minutes in a big spot knowing yes he's older and he's been around a long time i'm just so impressed with what jared dudley has done over his career going even back to college and like look even him coming out of san diego people weren't 100 sure so it's pretty impressive to become that many different versions of a basketball player to keep cash in check. So good for him. I'll go ahead and grab him, even though there's probably some high-end guys that I could still, meaning their peaks are higher than Dudley that I could still go with here, but I'll take Jared. Well, you get a couple good things with Dudley. Awesome teammate. Yeah. Be beloved teammate. Uh, played almost 900 games. 39% career three-point shooter. But the thing for me, that 2010 Suns team that I really liked that came a lot closer to beating the uh, the Lakers than I think people remember, he played 16 playoff games that year. He played 23.6 minutes a game. Averaged almost, he averaged basically an eight and four, shot 42.4% from three, almost four threes a game. And that team almost made the finals. So he was the seventh man on a team that came within that goofy art test put back and maybe one or two other breaks of, Sneaking into the finals. So I like that pick. I kind of wish I had him instead of Carl Landry. I'm going to fire a couple of my scouts after this. All right. Last but not least, I have the 13th pick here. And uh, is it sad? I, we, are you going to take Nick Young? Can we really do a redraft and not take Nick Young? I mean, he no, averaged, I'm not going to take him. He averaged 18 a game in 2014. We're just not going to take him? That's great. I'm going to take a uh, big baby. <laughs> Good for you. I knew you were gonna. Well, here's the thing. We know he's somebody who could be in the rotation of, of uh, a championship team. Cause he was, we 
no, in uh in 2009, he was really good in that Orlando playoff series. Remember, he was like defending yeah. Dwight Howard. And uh, I'm not anti this. I'm not. I'm not giving you a hard time for it. So 2011, he played a full season, played almost 29, almost 30 minutes a game, and averaged 12 and five. Let me look at his playoff stats. Hold on. Um, yeah, 2000. <laughs> oh my God, 2009 playoffs, 14 games in KG's spot. He averaged 16 and six. Not bad. Look, he was good. I mean, with the pick and pop with him, he hit that shot. Like you had, you had to defend him because uh, you could shoot. He really could shoot. And then the way his, his footwork was incredible because you'd always look at him and think like his body type. No, no, actually like his footwork. I remember before that draft, one of my favorite guys was like, no, this guy's people are going to whiff on him. They're like this guy should be a lock first rounder but they're going to look at his body and knock him. And they go, but if you look at his footwork, he's, he's special. Like this guy has like that pitter patter of running back, a really good running back. And, and he's got all of those things. And uh, all right, that's go, got go for, right. take 14 so we can get out of here. Gabe Pruitt, USC. Stop. I did like take, Gabe Pruitt coming out though. That you don't want to take Odin just so he can get the hat. I would. Cause I like Odin so much, but I can't, I can't do it with three seasons. Um, Stucky Tolliver or Corey Brewer is a fake three and D Corey Brewer. Who's had a longer career than you would think, but Corey Brewer for his career. Do you want to guess what his three point shooting numbers were? I mean, but they had to be under 30%, right? They like were 20, he was 27. 20, he's 28%. And what I love here too, is that like he, he was taking him in Denver and he was hitting 26%, 29%, 28% in Minnesota. Houston's like, Hey, you're a three and D cause you're skinny and not a power forward. Why don't you take threes too? And he hit, he took three and a half a game and hit 28%. So he actually had some double figure scoring. I will there. say in his defense though, he was on the court during that big Clippers comeback when with this, one of the five strangest yeah. games of the 21st century. I like those things about it, but I, you know, the more I watched him before, I was like, I just not quite sure what he does. So, I never, I never gave up on him. And I think, I think now I have to, cause I don't know if he's in the league anymore. It's Stucky or Corey Brewer. So no Tiago splitter, or no Joel Anthony for you. No, I mean, Joel Anthony. So like Tolliver, Joel Anthony, and then there's one other name. What is it? Gary Neal is the undrafted guys from this group. Or you could that, do Al Thornton, maybe just fresh start. No, <laughs> New I was not. I was not the uh, uh, AC Law. I loved him that senior year at AM. Loved, me loved too. him. But he was Big small miss for me. And he couldn't shoot. He, like, he, I think he shot like 50% from three his senior year. I love that AM team. And then he just couldn't shoot. Like, I was looking at it again, like, oh, that's right. Like, when you're a guard who shoots like 26% from three, you know it's what, probably though? not going to work out. Do you feel like point guards are like quarterbacks where they can lose their confidence and just not get it back? I think shooting. He, he can, was an incredible college player. I specifically incredible. remember watching multiple games with him going, wow, this guy's amazing. And it just and didn't happen. You know what he had to, and, and this isn't the best comp because Tyler Ulis is just so small that you go, all right. But when you watch Ulis in college, and for those that really knew him going back to high school, he saw the game differently than than most players you know these these great guards that you go all right he's he's seeing stuff other people just don't they're never gonna see right they don't process the same way i always felt like ac had some of that in him when i watched him at a&m where i'm like this guy's just this is terrific i mean you barely barely got to play but the same thing with law for the people listening if you're interested at all if you're even listening anymore 
there's <laughs> I think there's Fair. two there's two awesome Texas Texas A&M games with KD and AC Law that are re- one of them was epic like one of them one of them I specifically remember being like just incredible it was about as fun as I've had watching college basketball in the last 15 years regular season so Tiago Stucky uh, give me Tolliver give me Tolliver Fair. Just go hit hit me a bunch of threes in today's game, and I'll. He's I'll a find five a and D guy. A five uh, and D. Apologies to Ramon Sessions, and uh, apologies Ram- to Ramon Sessions, <laughs> and uh, apologies to <laughs> Josh McRoberts. Josh McBob, did you think the Celtics were going to take him? Because there was definitely that that out there. Well, he went ba- thirty went thirty seven, so they easily could have taken him. Um, um, remember though, he was going to be top five, and when he was healthy, he was an incredible combination of basketball skills. His passing for a guy that size, and his playmaking, and then once his back went south, and then everybody like the reports on him just weren't great. That he was just people didn't like him, and you know I don't know if that's fair, unfair. I mean, hell, I think we heard the same stuff about JJ Redick. So you know what does that mean? Was it was it wrong, or was JJ a, a jerk and? Now everybody likes JJ or was everybody wrong the whole time? So it's always kind of one of those things, especially as I get older, I don't like doing this thing where it's, let me just trash 18-year-old, 19-year-olds. But his back was bad. By the way, real quick, KD, you want to talk the all-money draft? KD through 2023, $350 million. Some of these guarantees are partial guarantees in the final years of some of these deals. Horford will make $270 million through his Sixers deal. Um, Gasol, Gasol's over two hundred too, right? He's 180 right now. And because remember, he started at 24, and that's a big part of this Gasol story. And he was great right away. Conley will be at 215 million. Thaddeus Young will be at 137 million. A hundred, and he's still, like I said, he's he's 20. Jeff um, Green Aaron, over 100. He's at 70, but nine ah. teams. Aflalo made 60 million. It's there's guys banked. Out of this draft. 2007 redraftables. Ryan Rosillo, thank you. We will see you uh, on the next one. All right. Thanks to ZipRecruiter. Thanks to Rosillo. Thanks to Simply Safe, the home security for right now. When feeling safe at home has never been more important, designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24 7, starting at 50 cents per day. Order online easily, open the box, place the sensors, plug it in. Your home is protected around the clock. No technician has to come to your house. Head to simplysafe.com slash BS. Simply Safe with two eyes and get a free HD camera if you are one of my listeners, which I hope you are. Uh, thanks to HBO Max, a new streaming platform where all of HBO meets the greatest collection of movies and shows. You name it, it's there. Thrones, Wire, Sopranos, Sex and the City. Uh, so many great movies that I actually went through the whole library and made a little list so I could uh, enjoy some of them again. New Max Originals for everyone. All your favorites all in one place for just 14 99 per month. There's some good old ones in there, by the way. Go check out Eyewitness with William Hurt and Sigourney Weaver. That's my recommendation for you. Start streaming today. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. Free trial for new customers only. Restrictions do apply. I'm going to have two more podcasts on this feed for you this week. We also have on the Rewatchables feed. We are finally running Fletch this week, so stay tuned for that. Uh, Enjoy the rest of the night. Take care of yourself. Stay safe. See you next time.